0: If you take got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews, chapter 6. Let me ask you a quick question. Last week we started, those of you that were able to be here with us, which admittedly wasn't all of us because of the weather and all that was going on. We started by talking about the trips you were looking forward to in the next year. What was coming up? Any trips that you were going to take? And and I want you to think about a a different kind of topic along the same lines today. I want you to think about the best trip you ever took. Best vacation, business trip, sightseeing. Best trip you ever took. Alright? I want you to turn to whoever's next to you and tell them, the best, Now, this could be tricky if you've got a spouse next to you, and the trip did not involve them, all right? That time I got away from you for six days, that was the best of my life, all right? So, turn to the person next to you, somebody around you, and tell them the best trip you've ever taken in your life. All right, somebody tell me one. What's the best trip you've ever taken in your life? Arizona. Arizona all right. Alex, what you got back there? The way, the, when you went to Brazil last, last year. All right? Hawaii. When'd you go to Hawaii, Al? 95. Somewhere around there, right? All right? Somebody else got one, Doug? What do you got? Gatlinburg. That's an awesome place, all right? Alaska. I don't want to go to Alaska now. It's warmer there, though. Miss Rachel, you, Holy land, right? Okay. Ephesus. All right, now here's a question I want to ask you, okay? When you're getting ready for a trip, we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, packing your bags, getting prepared. I want you to think about, is there something that you have to pack that's not like the normal stuff? Like, I'm not talking about, you know, like socks, underwear, shirts, pants. Hopefully that's on your list, all right? I'm talking about. Is there something that when you're going on a trip, you think I have to have this? All right. What's that? Somebody got something. Well, I got lots of people got something. All right. What was somebody tell me again? Medication. All right. What was that? CPAP. All right. Passport. Yeah, you got to have that if you're going on a long trip. All right. A deck of cards. Are you allowed to say that in church, Carol Miller? <laughs> At least you didn't say poker chips, right? That would have been worse, all right? Your own pillow, all right? Some of you have like a blanket you have to carry because you get cold traveling or anything like that, all right? A closed steamer. There you go. I didn't know this question would be as good as it was. I'm glad I asked it. Now, some people, when they're getting ready for a trip, one of the things that they have to pack, And this kind of goes along with some of the things you've said is this. What's this? This is dramamine. Why do people carry dramamine? They carry it because of motion sickness, right? How many of you get motion sickness? Alright, I see that hand up there, Diane, way up top, alright? Motions. How many of you get motion sickness like in a car sometimes? Alright, what about, uh, like how many of you one of the things I love to do on a long trip, if I'm I'm driving most of the time, but if I'm not, I love reading a book. How many of you cannot do that? Like you can't read a book and ride. All right. How many of you get it? Like on airplanes, anybody get a little motion sickness on airplanes? Glenn, I see that. All right. What about a what about on a boat? Anybody on? All right. So Dramamine is a fast-acting motion sickness relief, and the reason is is because it uh, just a uh, a lot of times it will knock you out, all right? It's that, now, they make non-drowsy formulas. This doesn't say non-drowsy on it, which means it'll put you to sleep if you're not careful, right? But motion sickness is caused when it seems like the world around you is unsteady. And your body cannot handle the unsteadiness of it. Over the last couple of weeks and for the next two weeks, we've talked about this idea of packing your bags. And the whole point of that is to how to prepare for what's next. That there is something next for all of us. There is some next in our lives. Whether it's a graduation or a new family member, either a new child or a wedding. Whether it's a retirement, whether it's the empty nest. Whether it's, um, as we've talked about, the ultimate retirement and preparing for a legacy. There's something that's next. And just as there are some things that are next that are big level, big ticket items, if you will, there's also next in just everyday life. There's the next challenge, the next opportunity. What's next? And we've talked over the last couple of weeks about how to prepare for what's next. One of the things that we've said both weeks, and it's so important for us to understand, is there's no correlation between knowing what's next... And being prepared for what's next. Just because you know what's coming doesn't mean you're ready for it. Just because you're aware of the next situation doesn't mean you're prepared. Did y'all see the Titans hired a coach yesterday? Alright, so the Titans hired a coach last night. He's a guy that's never coached as a head coach in any level. People say he's an up-and-comer, he's going to be a great guy, and I hope he is. Seems like a great guy, motivator, I'm excited. Even if he didn't go to Ohio State, we can forgive that every now and then. But we don't really know if he's prepared for what's next, even if he knows what's next. There's a difference between knowing what's coming and then being in the midst of it. Um, In my Old Testament survey class, um, I I give them a study guide. And I tell them, there is not a question on the test that is not on the study guide. Now, there are more questions on the study guide that are on the test. Because I'm not going to give them the test before the test. They don't like me for that. Just tell us what's on the test. And what what I can always, it's always interesting because I will give that to them three weeks beforehand. We'll go over it. We'll answer any questions. And then, as they're turning in the test, one of them will often say, I wasn't ready for that question. Well, I let you know it was coming, but that doesn't mean knowing, doesn't mean being prepared. And another premise of this series is we don't even have to know what's coming to be prepared for what's coming. You don't have to know what's ahead to be prepared for it. There are steps we can take now in order to prepare ourselves for it. And last week we... Centered around this one proverb. And I wanted to put this back up because it's such a great proverb. And if you weren't able to be here last week. It's, I want you to write it down and go look at it. It's such great wisdom. Because the premise of the whole series is that the prudent. And that's the wise. The ones that are seeking the Lord. Following the Lord. Trying to live in a wise fashion. The prudent see danger and take refuge. They're looking out for it. They see it. And then they do something about it. But the simple the, a better translation of that is the stupid, the unwise. See it, keep going, and pay the penalty. Now, I would encourage, if you weren't here last week, and you can navigate computers at all, go to our website and just go to fbcgillsville.com and click on sermons and watch the sermon from last week because there is some great insight about the entire series and this proverb in particular But the point of the whole series is that we can prepare ourselves today for whatever is next. And here's the reason we need to prepare for today whatever is next. And it's simply this. Because when what's next gets here, it can be discombobulating. I've been playing Scrabble. (laughs) That's a big word right there, right? Do you know what discombobulating means? It means it shakes us up. It makes us uneasy. It gets us a little wobbly. Like a, the great theologian that I've quoted a few times, Mike Tyson, used to say. <laughs> Everybody's got a plan till you get punched in the mouth. Right? And life is that way sometimes. Next, disorients us. Changes in our lives can bring a sort of motion sickness to us, can bring us to a point where we're uneasy. And the very nature of transition, remember that that first week, if you were here, we talked about the nature of any transition is that it leads to change and change always leads to stress. The very nature of transition causes us to lose our balance. And in the midst of that, in the midst of whatever's next hitting us in the face, in the midst of whatever's next coming at us, getting us uneasy, getting us on a foundation that isn't as firm. The key, the key to handling it, to moving forward, is to have something in the midst of the motion sickness to focus on and to hold on. Now, I'm fortunate. I've never been one. Now, when I was growing up, I had what they called, back in those days, I'm getting older now, right, back in the old days, back when I was growing up, they, I had what they called a nervous stomach, right? And so, like, things could make me sick pretty easily. But motion sickness was never one of those things that did. I've been fortunate in that way. But I've been around people that are, and when people are in motion sickness, they tell them to do two things. First of all, they tell them to pick something and to focus on it. Something that is sure and steady and not moving. So don't look at the boat that's bobbing up and down. Find a point on the horizon that is firm and focus on it. And they tell them to find something and hold on, right? Grasp it. Take a seat if you can. Focus on and hold on. It's like when I'm uh, at an airport and I'm riding from terminal to terminal. And you get in one of those terminals and uh, I'm around people that sometimes are a little germaphobic. And you know those trams in between the airports, if you've ever ridden those, they go pretty fast. And they've got all those things you grasp onto or hold onto in order that you don't fall. And there's always somebody that's in there that's not going to touch anything. Because of all the number, and I don't want to think about it really either, do you? The number of people have been touching that, holding that, coughing on that, sneezing on that, all that kind of stuff. But they're just not going to hold on. And they get themselves like they're going to be steady. And you know the first thing that happens? They start falling backwards and they grab on, right? In order to survive what's next, you think, where are we going with all this? We're going somewhere, I promise. In order to survive what's next, we need something to focus on. And we need something to hold on. The best metaphor, the best picture I can give you is, we need an anchor. Something that holds us and something we can hold on to. And in Hebrews chapter 6, now we did a whole series on Hebrews last last summer. This passage of scripture, we didn't really delve into much. We didn't even talk about it much. Part of the reason for that is, It is a difficult passage of Scripture to understand. But in this passage of Scripture, it tells us what we have in our lives that we can anchor our lives to. What we can hold on to. And what I want us to take from it today is this reality. That in the midst of a life that can toss and turn and move us this way and that way. And that whatever's next in our lives can give us that motion sickness feeling. That to prepare for that, we need to know what the anchor of our soul is. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Now if you remember, we did the Hebrew series last um, last summer, last started last fall. If you remember that time, we talked about every week that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of people that were considering whether Jesus was worth it or not. That they had abandoned their lives, their faith, to follow Jesus, and then their lives didn't get better automatically. And they're wondering, is it worth it? And so the author of Hebrews is giving argument after argument after argument that Jesus is better. And in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13, he's going to use Abraham as an example. From when God made a promise to Abraham, now, Whenever you say that, you can't just kind of walk by that without talking about what was the promise that God made to Abraham. The author here is referring all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to walk through Abraham's story. Most of us know it, but just to remind us again of what's going on. In Genesis chapter 12, God has already had this part where he has created the earth. He has made the earth. He has put man in it. He has allowed them to have the Garden of Eden. Man has chosen to walk away from him and sin. God has banished them from the Garden of Eden. God has destroyed the earth once through the flood and scattered the nations in Genesis 11 because they were not working towards God. They were trying to become God just as Adam and Eve did in eating the fruit. So when you get to Genesis 12, God says, here's the new plan. And he calls Abram and he says, I'm choosing you. There was nothing in Abram that caused him to be chosen. There was nothing good about him that God said, you're the best man left. He said, I'm choosing you. From all the stories we have, from all the names in the stories we have, we know that Abram was not necessarily a follower of Yahweh at that moment. But God said, I'm choosing you. And I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And he made him some promises, right? What promises did he make Abram there? He would make him a great nation, right? What else? That he would have as many sons as the stars in the sky. That he would bless every nation on earth through him. And that he would give him a land that would be for his people. And so in Genesis 12, he calls him and says, go to the land I'm going to show you. Abram starts faithfully to go. The rest of the story of Abraham, many of you know, is followed by moments of real faith and moments of real questioning. Because God promised him more sons than he could ever imagine. In fact, he changes his name to Abraham. Dad of dads, dad of many children, big daddy, great father. And so every time he introduced himself, Abraham had to walk around and say, Well, what's your name? Abraham, really? How many kids do you have? None. And you're the great father? That's your name? Every day he said his name, it was a reminder of the promise that God had given and that it had not yet been fulfilled. He tried his own way, right? And he used his maid servant. He had a child, and God said, That's not the child. And, Later, when three men visit, he says, "Next time I come back here, next year your wife Sarah is going to have a child, and Sarah does what? She laughs because she's eavesdropping. Women, you don't ever do that, do you? There were some nervous grins there, all right? I'm not stepping on toes. I'm just asking questions, all right? God provides them a son. They celebrate. And then in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to him and says, Abraham, that son I gave you, I need you to sacrifice him. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. We'll come back to that in a minute. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Those were the two kind of undergirding. That's the big picture things he says to him. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to make you to a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a nation. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Next verse. And so. After waiting. After waiting. Patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. He received it. Now you know in Genesis 22, when he takes his son up on the mountain to sacrifice him to the Lord, his son says, where's the ram? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And they look when he gets there and God stops him and the ram's in the thicket. Abraham received him back as from the dead. In Hebrews a little bit later, chapter 11, it tells us that the reason Abraham was willing to do that is because he so trusted in the promise of God that he was convinced that if God did call him to sacrifice his son, God would have brought him back from the dead because God cannot break his promise. And that's what's being talked about here. He says, God, when he swore by his name, because there was no one else to swear by. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. He says, listen, and this was a big deal in the Old Testament. It was a big deal in the time of the New Testament, the time of Jesus. People would make oaths. They would swear by things. And so someone would come to them and they would say, are you telling the truth? And they would say, I swear on my mother's grave. Translated into modern playground talk, cross my heart and hope to die. That's what they would say. Like, I swear on my family's life. I swear by my son. Here's what the consequences were of that day and time. If you swore by something and you were telling a lie, they were responsible for what you did. And it says when people do that, they swear by something greater than them. They don't swear by something lesser. When we take oaths, when you put your hand on the Bible in a court of law and say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and the truth, so help me. We don't tell something less than us to help us. We don't say, so help me, my little sister. Right? We don't say, so help me, any other human being. We say, so help me, God. Because we're appealing to something higher, bigger, that we swear. I swear by. I'm taking an oath by. I am promising by something greater. Well, here's what it said when it says the promise of Abraham. And this is all going to come in just a moment here. It says, when God did that with Abraham, he had no one bigger than himself to swear by. So when he swore an oath to Abraham, he swore by himself. Now, now, I don't mean this in any jest at all. Basically, God said, I promised this Abraham, so help me God. Like, I'm going to make it happen. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. And in that day and time, if the swear by didn't work, then you said, well, I will promise an oath. I'll speak an oath. Now, oath speaking have become so prevalent in this day and time that Jesus even addressed it. Do you remember that? He said, do not swear an oath by this or that. Just let your yes be a yes and a no be a no. People would get out of things by saying, well, I said yes, but I never swore by it or took an oath. So when they got serious, they would swear by something greater and then take an oath. It wasn't an oath like a written contract. It was just a word. He goes on to say this. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose. That's a great phrase. I don't think we're going to have time to deal with today. But it is awesome. Even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. Now this is really cool. So he's talking about Abraham... Who are the heirs of the promise he's writing to in Hebrews? Us. To the Hebrews, it's them. But as we read it, it's us. So it's not just Abraham he's swearing by. He is swearing by his name and making an oath for us. He guaranteed it with an oath. So he made a promise, sworn by himself, and he made an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. So we're going to stop there for a second. And go back. Here we go. we got to get our head around this, all right? This, this, is, this is deep theological stuff, all right? I need, your, I need your seminary hats on. Some of you say, I don't have a seminary hat. I need you to pretend you do, all right? The argument here from the Hebrew writer is some of you are concerned because you have given your life to Jesus and life got worse. Now, I don't mean don't hear me say that that I'm taking away the hope or the love or the salvation of Jesus. What I'm saying is your external circumstances got worse because you're following Jesus. You remember last week we talked about that as we move towards the end times. Things are not going to get better for followers of Jesus that all the scripture points to the fact that as we move towards end times it's going to become harder. And for these people in Hebrews, they were experiencing that now. And he says, some of you have said, well, wait a minute. When I was a Jew, I was in a protected class. When I followed Jesus, I moved out of that and life has gotten harder. I've lost my family. I've lost my business. I can barely make it. I don't know what I'm doing. Is it worth it? And he says, listen, Abraham believed in what God did because God promised him. He goes, now, God promised him then. He promised us now. And he's taken an oath now on our behalf. And he says... You can trust in the unchangeable purpose and truth of who God is. He says, and for us to do that, Yes, we may have to flee for refuge. Yes, we may have some difficult times. Yes, what's next may make emotion sickness into our life. It may shake us up. It may rattle our cage. But we might have strong encouragement to seize. I love that word. To grasp. To hold. To take by force the hope that is set before us. And then he says this. And this will we'll finish the verse. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. He says the life around you is going all over the place. The boat is rocking, it is unsteady, at times it feels like the earth is shaking under your feet, but in the midst of everything going on in your life, if you believe and trust in the truth of who God is and what he has promised, that is the anchor that we can hold on to and that holds on to us in the midst of whatever life brings. And this, is the th- this isn't new information for you today, but sometimes it's good to be reminded. Amen. Here's the truth I want you to get. The one thing I want you to get today, all right? Our promise-making, oath-declaring God, provides us with a superior basis for stability in life. What the writer of Hebrews says is you can go and look for stability in all kinds of places in this life. In a ritualistic religion, in a family system, in a corporate world, in an educational institution... In a career path. But nothing provides the stability of a promise making. Oath declaring God that cannot lie and is unchangeable. You remember what we said that when you got motion sickness and you're on the boat they tell you to do. They tell you to find a fixed point And to focus. And they tell you to hold on. What the writer of Hebrews says is. When life comes at you and it is discombobulating. I want you to use that word sometime this week, just for fun. When life comes at you and it is discombobulating. Our promise-making, oath-declaring God provides us with the stability in life. Now, a couple of things that we need to realize, based on what we just read about Abraham... Is that this life. Requires. Patience. Because he doesn't promise. That everything gets better. Immediately. Let me ask you a quick question. Did Abraham have to wait? Yeah. Yeah. We don't know how many years exactly. But it was more than three. He was how old. When he had a child. He was in his late 90's. Now I thought about this yesterday. I did a. Funeral for Miss Catherine Duke. Miss Catherine Duke, one of our oldest members, passed away this week. Ninety-six years old. And I thought, what if we found out that someone that age was expecting? That's not what you're expecting to hear, right? Ninety-nine years old. He waited. I want you to think about this. When God called him to sacrifice Isaac, did he wait for the resolution from God to finish it off and tell him to save his son? He did. When did God tell him to stop? Like halfway up the mountain? When they got to the top of the mountain and were starting to get things together? When did God tell him to stop? From the scripture, it appears at the last possible moment. I wonder sometimes. How many blessings of the Lord we have missed because we just didn't wait long enough. We became Abraham with Hagar instead of waiting. You see, sometimes when life comes and next is here and we're in the midst of it and we are going being tossed all around here and there and the boat is shaking and we think, God, we just need it to end now. God, I need resolution now. And God says, be patient. God, I've been patient for like two days. Anybody here had any of the sinus stuff this winter? I started getting it middle of last week. It really hit me Friday. I was tired of it by Saturday morning. Praying for deliverance from the Lord from it. Now, y'all think I'm joking. I'm not joking, alright? I was done with it. I'd had it for 12 hours. Isn't it amazing how desperate we get when things aren't going our way? And yet, our promise-making, oath-declaring God provides us for that stability, but we must realize that it will require patience on our part. But we also see in this passage, and this is wonderful, that the promise-making, oath-declaring God provides us with superior basis for stability and hope. And that hope is the most powerful anchor for our motion-sickened Souls may have proven in scientific studies that human beings and even animals can live in complete degradation if they have hope. But the moment that hope is extinguished, they give up the fight. There are drawings on the walls of some of the gas chambers in Europe. And some of the people that survived even that, you see survived because of hope. Here's the question. What are you hoping in? Where do you place your hope? Because whatever's next is going to discombobulate us because it's going to change us. And change and transition always brings stress. And stress always brings anxiety. And in the midst of that, whether we're prepared for it or not, whether we know it's coming or not, whether we're ready for it or not, it's still in the moment harder oftentimes than we imagined. And in the midst of that is the true test of where your stability lies, and where your hope is. We got people in our society putting their hope in all kinds of places that are going to fail them. And one of the things that I know about what's next in your life, if you have placed your hope in anything other than God, oftentimes the transitions of our lives reveal to us how fluid and how unreliable. Those things that we've placed our hope in are. As much as people love us, they can't always be there for us. No matter what your security nest egg is, it may not provide enough. If you put your hope in a skill, it's going to go away. A couple of weeks ago, um, so I'm uh, with Kevin Steelman. He and I are coaching uh uh, community league basketball teams. Coaching two of them, and both of our boys are the same age, and so Luke and um, and Wade are playing on a team, and then Eli and Gray are playing on a team. And Eli and Gray's team are seventh through ninth graders, so we've got some big boys on there. I don't know if you've seen Eli lately, but Eli's pushing six one, and he is youth strong. He doesn't know he's strong. He just is a teenager. So we, we Kevin and I. Because we just don't have enough guys to run it over the last few weeks. I've been running full court basketball with these guys on Friday nights, getting them ready for the game the next day. Because somehow we think we're an accurate representation of the athleticism they're going to see in the game the next day. And this particular, um this particular Friday night, two or three Friday nights ago, um, Eli was guarding me. And you know, there's a point in your life when you're a dad and you let your son win. You don't tell him you do, but you let him win for some confidence. We were past that point, alright? So this is, he wants to beat his dad and I want to show him I still got it. So I post him up down on the block. Receive a perfect entry pass and go to my old move. A turnaround, fade away, bank shot. And as I get to the top of my jump to put it on, Eli takes his hand and grabs the ball and throws me to the ground. (laughs) Completely clean, nothing but ball, and I say to myself, I will never do that again (laughs) in my life. That skill I depended on when I was younger is no longer available in my repertoire. Right? At some point, everything but the Lord will fail us. I love my kids dearly. I will fail them. And I do. I love my wife dearly. And in 20 almost years of marriage, I have failed her on many occasions, and I will. And if I'm putting my hope in them, or they're putting their hope in me alone, we will be disappointed in the midst of the sea of change. Where's your hope? Hebrews says, we have this hope. As an anchor for the soul. What is this hope? It is the two unchangeable things that God did. He gave us a promise and He gave us an oath. And He is unchangeable and unable to lie. And so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He will do what He says He will do. There is no doubt for that. And so, what we realize in this passage is, whatever's next in your life, whatever is coming in your life, when you are anchored in God, first of all, you are never alone. Never alone. Throughout Scripture, He tells people not to be afraid. Do not fear. Now, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear. As you go into the world, make disciples, don't fear. And then he gives the reason you don't have to fear. He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous because I am with you as I was with Moses. He tells David, David writes about the fact that even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Man, for so many years of my life, I was so enamored because I love that phrase. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That in my mind sometimes I would skip over. Do not, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I would skip over that little part in the middle. But it is the most important part of the whole thing. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. It doesn't matter about a, a rod and a staff. It matters about his presence. Moses said, I don't want to go to the holy land, to the promised land, if you're not with us. Jesus says, You're my witnesses. Go make disciples. Every tongue, every nation. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you're anchored in God, you're never alone. The second thing we see in this is that when you're anchored in God, you are protected. On all sides. He's telling this group of people that feel like their life is literally in danger. That God will be their shield. Now again, this is a term that we have to come to understand means something different than we necessarily want it to mean at all times. It doesn't mean that he's going to give us everything we want. It doesn't mean he's going to prosper us in the way that the world sees prospering. And it doesn't even mean that he won't allow things to happen to us. There is story after story throughout scripture and throughout the history of the church where God has allowed someone to even be put to death. But that does not mean he isn't protecting them. You know, how in the world is that? Because we know that as Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. That sometimes the press protection he can give us is to go be with him. And so the truth is, you're protected on all sides. He's got you in the front, and He's got you in the back, and He's got you on the sides. And the last things, and then we're done. When you're anchored in God, you can be confident of better days ahead. Scripture promises, not only that we have this hope that is firm and secure. And this isn't going to be on the screen, but at the end of it, it tells us why. It tells us because... Jesus enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, that the veil has been torn, the Holy of Holies has been entered. Jesus has entered there on behalf as a forerunner, as the one that's going before, as the pacemaker, as the one who is in front. And the idea there is, just as experienced, Jesus did experience life and death and resurrection, that as the first fruits of the resurrection, He would pass that on to us, co-heirs with Him, because He has become a high priest forever. When you're anchored in God, you can be confident that no matter what comes against us in this age... Better days are ahead. And so, when you're in the midst of the storm-tossed motion sickness next, focus on, hold on to the anchor. The promise-making, oath-declaring God, who has sent His Son on our behalf. Now, here's the truth. I don't have a clue what's next for you, but I can guarantee you this, God does. No. And he's going to be there with you as long as you're a follower of his. Let's pray together.